So if you keep um, looking at John 17 as we continue our study on this prayer of Jesus in John 17. Throughout this prayer, we discover uh, and are reminded of what are the priorities of Jesus. What is Jesus most passionate about? What is Jesus most concerned about as he prays to his Father? Last week we saw that one of the things that, that Jesus is deeply concerned about is that he would be glorified and that his Father would be glorified, particularly in his death, resurrection, and ascension. God is consumed with his own glory. Uh, Jesus prays to the Father that his own glory would be displayed so that we would see it and so that we would be able to live in it. This incredible glory of a God who pours out himself in Jesus to rescue rebels like us. Today we want to see another important priority that we see as Jesus' prayers. And that main priority and the main request that we are going to look at is, is, is comes right out of verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. One of the main priorities that we see in this text is that Jesus wants us, the followers of Jesus, to be one, to be unified. And this is a significant uh, understanding throughout the word of God of, of the desire of God to have his people, the people who follow him, the people who received his grace to live in unity. This is not some kind of superficial unity where we all sit around, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. That would be easy. Unity is a lot harder. So we're going to look at that. But before we look at that priority, we need to see the foundation for that unity, which is crucial that Jesus lays out in his prayer, which is so fundamentally important. We need to see this foundation first, then we'll see the priority of unity. As D.A. Carson describes in verses 6 through 10, he says, before offering specific petitions, which is about the unity of God's people, Jesus identifies them, his followers, by outlining several features that establish their place in God's redemptive purposes. In a very real sense, what we need to, to have before we look at unity, we need to understand the foundation of that unity. And the foundation of that unity is that Jesus, in praying to the Father, um, shows us in his prayer that we... As God's people, those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, have received the free gift of eternal life, that we are an incredibly important part of God's redemptive program, but it has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's look first at the foundation for unity and then secondly, we want to see uh, what this unity is like to see this priority. So first, the foundation for unity in the body of Christ, in any church and in the church at large, is the grace of God. Look at verse 6. 
over and over again, Jesus is going to describe this grace in all kinds of different ways. Jesus begins in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus is describing here is that he manifested the name of God. He manifested, it's another way to say, the full beauty and character of Father God, Jesus manifested himself. In the upper room discourse, which occurs right before this prayer, in some sense, this prayer is praying that the teaching of the upper room discourse is accomplished. Jesus says in John 14, he says, if you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. In other words, when we see how Jesus operates, because he is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, in the flesh, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, you are getting a beautiful picture. Jesus is showing you what God is like. Again, this is a manifestation of God's grace. To show us himself to give us this human picture, this fully God, fully human being, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, manifesting the beauty and glory of Father God in his life. It's also interesting, he says, I've manifested your name, the glory of you, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You know, we normally think of, of, of Jesus as God's gift to us. But the reality is, according to Jesus' prayer, is that we were the Father's gift to Jesus. In other words, the Father, we were the Father's. And the Father gave us out of the world, that yours they were, Jesus says, and you gave them to me. In other words, we are God's gift from Father God to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. What, what, what John is referring to, and he referred to us back in the, early, uh, the, the last section, John 17, 1 through 5, is that God's love for us did not begin when we decided to follow Jesus. Oh no, God's love for us began before the creation of the world. He had to initiate that love for us. He had to set his love on us first. And before we were ever born, he set that love on us. And then we were born into the world, though rebels and sinners. He then brought together the full power of the Godhead to bring us to himself. And without God's initiating work of, of, of selecting us and choosing us and choosing to set his love on us before the creation world and his, his uh, initiation in uh, sending the spirit of God to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, unless the Father didn't draw us to himself, we would never on our own come to faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout the book of John, he mentions this, what we call the doctrine of election. And I always love what Charles Spurgeon says about God's election. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. 
And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. It's God's grace. Verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, everything that you've given me is from you. In other words, what Jesus communicated, what he taught, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that Jesus was, the, the followers of Jesus have come to understand that everything, Father, you gave to me, they, they now understand it's from you. He goes on in verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. In other words, these followers, and we by extension, when we receive the words that God gave to Jesus, and then Jesus shared with his disciples, and by extension shared with us, We've received them, and we've come to know in truth that, that Jesus came from God the Father and believed that God the Father sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, into the world to bring redemption to us. Again, all of this is grace. All of this is not anything that we have done. All of this is not something that God was obligated to do, in fact. But out of sheer grace and mercy, he gave the words to Jesus. Followers of Jesus, when we receive them, we've come to know that Jesus came from the Father and that the Father sent Jesus into the world. And he goes on in verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm praying for the world, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, this other incredible idea that we, not because of anything we have done, are God's gift of the Father to the Son. We are part of that gift. And that gives incredible value and worth to us. But again, it has nothing to do with what you and I have done. It's, it's, it's everything that the Father and the Son have accomplished. And now we can see ourselves as this gift from the Father to the Son. And we now, because of grace, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, which is all that God initiated that work to bring us to that place, we can look at ourselves and say, we are, we are yours, God. We have an intimate relationship with the Father through Jesus so that we now have this intimacy with the God who made us through the second person of the Trinity, God, the, the Son, Jesus. This is incredible. It's powerful. What Jesus is saying over and over again in so many words is that because of the grace of God, for those who have come to faith in Jesus alone for their salvation, we are now identified intimately, directly with God himself and God the Son in Jesus. Our identity now 
is based on grace. It's not something we perform for or work for or, or accomplish in our own strength. It's all a gift of God, but now it has changed everything about us, including our very identity as people. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Think about that. I am glorified in them. I, <laughs> Jesus is glorified in us. <laughs> what? I look in the mirror and the first thing in the, when I look in the mirror is I don't think, wow, you're glorified in me. No. But it's true. It's true, not because of my performance or your performance. Because when, 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 when God pours out his grace and pours out his undeserved favor to us in Jesus, and then gives us to Jesus, the bringing of sinful people like you and me into a right relationship with the Father through Jesus brings God great glory and he is glorified in us. incredible it's frankly amazing there's one more thing I want you to see in this text that I think is also important if you go back up to to verse 6 again Jesus talking about how he showed the beauty and character of God the Father when you see Jesus you've seen the Father you gave them to me And, and then it says and they have kept your word Now you read that and you say, okay, Jesus is actually praying specifically, by extension he's praying for us as well, but he's praying for disciples who in about 24 hours are all going to deny him, run away from him, and scatter. And yet he says, and they've kept your word. Huh? Really? Go up to verse 8. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And yet, it won't be long before these same individuals, Peter will deny Jesus, act like he never knew about Jesus, the disciples will scatter. The next 72 hours, they will hide in a upper room, scared to death, not exhibiting sort of any of the things that Jesus seems to be saying about them. And what does that mean? I mean, and, and you know, one idea is, well, John is speaking, you know, uh, you know he, he's sort of projecting what they will be like before the resurrection. This is sort of, you know, uh, anachronistic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of an anachronistic way for John to describe this. But I don't think so. John is very careful in how he puts his book together. I, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that John's made a mistake here. But I think what he is saying is that, yes, the, 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 the faith of these disciples is surely not as mature as it will be after the resurrection. Surely it won't be as mature as it will be later in their life as they take the gospel to the world, of course. 
But I think Jesus, Jesus is honestly saying, they have come to believe in me. They have received my words. They do believe that I was sent from the Father. They have put their faith and confidence in me alone. They understand that I have the words of eternal life. We read that in other places in the Gospels. They do understand this. It may be weak at times. It may be, uh, it may be a little bit flighty and inconsistent at times. But it's still true that they, they have trusted in me and they have believed that I came from Father God and therefore they are mine, this gift given to me by the Father. And, and, and Jesus can speak about this. And it's, it's not being confused. It's not anachronistic. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the honest assessment that the God, the Son, and the Father have of these believers. And I'm telling you, it's incredible encouragement to us, is it not? How many of us, in a moment of failure, or under significant trials, deep disappointments, crises that you find yourself in, you find your faith is weak. It's not the strength of your faith that makes you right with God, it's the object of your faith that is so crucial. And what we have to hold on to, and what Jesus is praying and describing to the Father, we must hold on to the fact that Jesus graciously manifested the Father to us. The Father graciously gave us eternity past. He was thinking about us, setting his love on us. We are a gift to the Son of God, to Jesus. We are Jesus's. We are God the Father's. We have an intimate relationship with God all by grace. And even in our times of failure, even in our times of weak faith, since God deals with us by grace, it cannot overcome even our weakness, even our lack of faith at times. If we have put our faith and confidence in the right object to that faith, we are His. We are still the Father's gift to the Son. Our performance cannot unravel what the grace of God has done in our life. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, we can put it this way. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and is no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was he does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. It is the grace of God that is the foundation to a relationship with God the Father and through the Son and in this particular prayer, it is the foundation to the unity that is a priority for Jesus in this prayer. And so now we want to go back to verse 11. We've looked at the foundation, the grace of God. Now we want to look at the, the priority. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Jesus is going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. 
He addresses his father as Holy Father. I think that's significant because later on in the prayer, he's going to be talking about how we are sanctified by the truth, by the truth of God's word. Then he says, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And that's the priority here. priority is that we, as the followers of Jesus today, we would be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one, even as there is unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they relate to one another in perfect harmony, we are supposed to reflect this in our relationships with one another. Now, let me just be clear about this, what this isn't. Being unified as, as, as followers of Jesus does not mean we agree on everything. Do you understand that? It's not meant that, that, that the leadership of the church will tell you every little thing to believe. The reality is, you wouldn't do that, but that's not unity. The other thing I say, it's not, it's not a superficial unity. In other words, it doesn't mean we can still be in, in one together. It doesn't mean that there isn't conflict. There will be conflict. The reality is a lot of Christian people are so freaked out about conflict, they never deal with conflict appropriately, which undermines unity. It doesn't mean that you can't express a concern or a disagreement. I know some, there's been preachers and pastors and church leadership teams who've made that the test of unity. We're not saying that. You can write me an email this afternoon and criticize anything you want. You will not be excommunicated. You will not be put under church discipline. I will read the email and I will respond to you within five months. <laughs> Quickly, I think. That's not what it means either. The other thing is we don't look to other things to bring unity to the church. In other words, we are not trying in any shape or form to unify this church politically. That would be a loser. You're like hogs on ice. You're all over the place. Waste of time. The unity is all about grace. The unity we have is because we have been enveloped in this gracious pouring out of the Father and the Son on us. It's this grace that unifies us. It's because we know that we, 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 we don't deserve to have a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. We have no reason to assume that we have been, we have been so wonderful that the Father gave the Son this gift. He didn't look at us and say, wow, Stonehill Church, that's a great group. Here, Jesus, here's your gift. That's not what happened. He set his love on us before we were ever born. He set his love on us and drew us to himself when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's all by grace. And because it's all by grace, the unity that we have 
the unity that we have in Jesus is that we are unified in love because of the grace that we have been given. We are unified in purpose. In other words, what's our main purpose? Well, the things that Jesus prayed for that we saw last week. The glory of God the Father and the glory of Jesus unites us. That ought to be our overriding purpose. And of course, we'll get to this in, in, in next week. But also what unifies us is we have the same purpose in the sense to glorify God, but the same purpose that we would be changed and we would become more in real time who we already are in Christ. We'd become more like Jesus Christ in real time. That's another purpose. That's why Jesus calls him Holy Father in this section. And he will go on to say more about this next week but it's also that we're unified in truth Jesus gave us the words that the father gave him look at verse 8 they've received them I've come to know in truth that I came for you and they have believed that you sent me we are we are unified because of truth we're unified because of the basic truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that is contained in God's word, that it also provides unity in a church. What Jesus is driving at, and we've already mentioned it a couple of times this morning, is that Jesus himself said in the upper room discourse in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Jesus prayed in John 17 that the body of Christ will be united with the Godhead in the same way that he himself is united with his Father. The implication is that when people see us, they've seen the Father. And if they don't believe us on account of our words, they should believe us on account of our works. Because we are to do greater works than Jesus did, we're told. This is the kind of unity that will cause the world to know that the kingdom of God has come and is near them. And I think we, we, we ought to mention a group of people that many of whom are with the Lord, even the foundation of this church, this local church, Westerly Road Church, back in 1956 was founded. And it was, you know, it's interesting, it was a group of Presbyterians and Baptists who wanted to worship the Lord together. And they didn't agree on baptism. But they wanted Jesus Christ to be supreme. They were willing to, 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 to live with some you know, dissonance there so that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified. And so if this unity, all based on grace, is all part of bringing honor and glory to God, we of all people are going to need to ask God by his spirit to help us to live in unity. We need to focus on that. Again, I'm not talking about a superficial unity. We're not going to sit here and sing there we are one in the spirit at the end of the sermon, thankfully. Okay? I've sung it and been you know, it's not some forced unity. We're going to have all kinds of differences on on, on minor matters. But when it comes to Jesus, 
The glory that Jesus, the glory that God has, the grace of God, the supremacy of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the centerpiece of our faith, that is what should drive us together. And to show the world the reality of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit by the way we love each other, by the way we embrace God's purposes for us in making this place not about us, but about the glory of the Father and the glory of Jesus. Making this place about a place where all of us are attempting to to become more like Jesus Christ in real time. A place where the word of God and the truth of God's word controls us more comprehensively, more consistently. As a pastor's kid, growing up in a pastor's home. I saw the inside of of a church, and it's messy. I know it is. We're fallen people. We want what we want. We are prone to focus on, take little items and make them huge and lose Jesus and the glory of Jesus and becoming like Jesus and, and lose the, the truth of God's word in so many different ways. We are so prone sometimes to, the minute there's a conflict, we freak out and go, oh no, I thought this church was uh, perfect. It's not. We want to focus on so many other issues. We like it that we would like everyone to agree with us on all these other superfluous issues. It's never going to happen. I've been trying for 23 years. I can't get hardly anybody to be a Dallas Cowboy fan. It just doesn't work. You're stiff-necked. Please don't call me Monday night when the Cowboys lose. Just don't call me. Please, just don't do that. I know they're going to lose. Yes, you heard it here first. The grace of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, the fact that we are the Father's gift to the Son and we did nothing to deserve that, all of this should rebound to massive unity. Unity of purpose, unity of love, unity of life change through the power of God's word and unity in truth. The truth that we read about in God's word. May God help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you, you, you pray for unity among your followers. And we are prone to de-unify the followers of Jesus for all kinds of reasons, Lord. I pray that you would help us, convict us, change us, transform us. But Lord, I pray that we would not attempt to build unity here on anything other than the grace of Jesus Christ. Because we are the Father's gift to the Son, because the Father set his love on us before the foundation of the world, because we have received the words of God the Father through Jesus Christ, because we have received them by faith and now know that you sent Jesus to come and die in our place, Lord, that is the basis of our unity. So may you drill down deep in our hearts the grace, the love, the purpose, 
that all stems out of your incredible grace. And I pray that we would more consistently and more comprehensively live out unity in the midst of our differences, in the midst of our diversity. So that the beauty of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have lived in perfect harmony from all eternity past would be seen in this world. That we would, by you, show the world the reality of what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are like. That they would see a glimpse of the beauty of our great God. All of it based on the grace of God that we have received by faith in you. Help us to that end, I pray in your name.